0: America's wisest old man was writing his last will and testament. Benjamin Franklin had followed his own life advice and been frugal with his money, unlike some of the more debt-ridden big spenders of the revolutionary generation, like Thomas Jefferson, who asked the state of Virginia to let him conduct a lottery in order to pay off his $170,000 in debt, which would be about $2 million today. And this in spite of his free labor force and a number of high-paying government jobs. Ben had been the postmaster general of the colonies and a successful printer. His Poor Richard's Almanac, being both entertaining and useful, was a bestseller. By the time he retired in his 40s, he had so much money that he didn't even patent his more lucrative inventions like the lightning rod, which was both useful and a literal lifesaver. He had plenty of people to leave his fortune to. His son, William Franklin, former royal governor of New Jersey. His grandson, Temple Franklin, who had been Ben's secretaries during the negotiations with France, they got the colonies some much-needed assistance with that whole give-the-British-a-whoopin thing. Sally Bash, his daughter, Benjamin Bash, Sally's son, or even his sister Jane. Everyone in the family got a little something. William got debt forgiveness for all the money he had borrowed from his father throughout his life. Temple got Ben's papers and a nice bit of money. Sally got most of Ben's Philadelphia properties, and Benny Bash got his grandpa's printing presses which he used to attack his grandfather's old friends George Washington and John Adams in the American Aurora, a newspaper he founded in 1794. But Ben Franklin's most interesting bequest was the one he made to the cities of Boston and Philadelphia. He had been born in the first and grew to manhood in the second. He set up a trust of a $1,000 for each of his hometowns, about a $100,000 in today's money, to be used to provide loans to tradesmen like himself who were trying to set themselves up in business the trusts would expire after 200 years. Franklin said the cities could then use what was left for municipal improvements. He calculated the bequests in 1990 would be worth about $4 million each. In a generation of founding fathers who always seemed to have their eyes set on a distant American future, where the nation spanned the entire continent and was a world power, Ben's bequest was far more practical and stayed close to the two cities he called home. He believed that two centuries after his death, America would still have a thriving middle class that would be the backbone of the country. And he was right. We take a look at Benjamin Franklin's long-term bet on America and compare it to the rampant short-term thinking of our country's leaders and far too many of its citizens on this episode of I'm Not Allowed to Watch the News. By now you know I don't enjoy getting all preachy and lecturing everyone, so I'll let Benjamin Franklin do it for me. Ben believed that what had worked for him would work for anyone and that America was designed from the time of its original settlement to be a place where young people of skill and ambition could rise from humble beginnings to the pinnacle of society and thereby be useful to their communities and their country. A person could use America to reinvent themselves the way he and countless others had done. Usefulness. Was a big deal to Ben Franklin. Even in his will, he wrote, "I wish to be useful even after my death, if possible, in forming and advancing other young men that may be serviceable to their country." His grandson Benny Bash adopted the motto "Surgo ut prosum," "I rise to be useful," in honor of his grandfather. George Washington believed in dignity, integrity, and the well-timed surprise holiday attack. John Adams believed in education and purposeful curmudgeonliness. Alexander Hamilton was a fan of fiscal responsibility and letting the other guy shoot first in a duel. Thomas Jefferson was all about freedom, except for the involuntary labor force at Monticello and his slave mistress and their children. Ben Franklin thought there was no higher aspiration than usefulness, and he put a bunch of money in 200 years on the line to see if he was right. Was he? In part. During the first hundred years of his bequest, Boston and Philadelphia made small loans to aspiring artisans. At the end of the first century, the Boston Fund was worth about $400,000. Part of the money was used to establish what became the Benjamin Franklin Institute of Technology, with a matching grant from Andrew Carnegie, who was spending his massive fortune on philanthropic works to compensate for his earlier career as an evil titan of industry. The rest stayed in the trust, and in 1990, 200 years after Franklin's death, it was worth $5 million. Philadelphia was less successful. There was only $172,000 in the fund at the 100-year mark. Three-fourths of it went to establish the Franklin Institute, a museum and center of scientific learning. Quite a bit of it had been used for mortgage loans for young tradesmen. The fund had $2.3 million in it in 1990. The mayor of Philadelphia appointed a council of historians to decide what to do with the money, and in keeping with Ben's final wishes and the way he had lived his life, it went to libraries and fire departments, two pet projects of Ben's during his lifetime, as well as scholarships for vocational training. $4,300 of the grant from the Father of Electricity went to a poor Philly high school that used the money to build an electric car that won the Power of Dreams Award. Other aspects of the Franklin Grants weren't so inspiring or in keeping with Ben's wishes. In 1890, Ben's great-great-grandson Albert Bash filed lawsuits in Boston and Philadelphia claiming that the money rightly belonged to Ben's blood heirs, since there was no basis in English common law for the kind of trust Ben had established. Both lawsuits were dismissed. The cities themselves got tied up in legal wrangling over what to do with the money, including one protracted fight between the city of Boston and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. But such was Franklin's historical esteem, that wiser heads prevailed, and the money was largely spent, as Ben intended, on vocational education and public works that improved the lives of all residents of both cities, present and future. His gifts kept on giving even after his 200-year time limits expired. The Franklin Institutes of Boston and Philadelphia still provide education and opportunity to new generations of Americans, and will for years to come. Long-term thinking is, as Ben's example shows, particularly American. Or it was.
1: This episode is sponsored by Ben Franklin in the Cockpit. King George III's American colonists were up to no good in 1774, turning Boston Harbor into the world's largest tea kettle in the protest of the crown's attempt to raise revenue. It was time to hold them, that is, the colonists, accountable, and as luck would have it, the king had the most famous American in the world right there in London. So Benjamin Franklin was summoned to appear before the king's privy council in an octagonal room that Henry VIII once used for cockfights. The Crown's prosecutor spent quite a lot of time blaming Franklin for colonial unrest and defiance. Through it all, Ben stood silent in a simple blue suit of Manchester velvet. And it is said that he went into that room an Englishman and came out an American. Four years later, when the United States signed the Treaty of Alliance with France, designed to give the British a proper ass whooping, Franklin wore the exact same blue suit he had worn in the cockpit. He had saved it for just this occasion and said he was giving the suit a little revenge. I guess revenge is a dish best served while wearing a blue velvet suit. Take that, British Empire.
0: If Benjamin Franklin were alive today, he would find quite a lot to be happy about. The fledgling American Republic fulfilled the destiny he and his compatriots had predicted, taking over the continent and becoming a world power. American values of democracy, equality, and opportunity inspired the world. The United States is still a place where someone of humble beginnings can rise to heights of success by way of their own talent and hard work. Ben would probably be less thrilled about the American obsession with money and short-term thinking. The prosperity that began after the end of the Second World War made the middle class prosperous at a level Ben would have appreciated. But then things transcended from the good of the whole to the good of the individual. In the decades since, Americans have largely seen money as an acquisition instead of a thing of purpose. The days where reformed robber barons like Andrew Carnegie and John D. Rockefeller used their fortunes to benefit society are long gone. The richest among us tend to hold on to their fortunes, mainly for their own enjoyment, with only token charitable activities used to clear their consciences or get a tax deduction. Poor and middle-class Americans debt finance their lives, sacrificing tomorrow's stability for today's new car or expensive vacation. Saving for retirement is rare, with a majority of Americans using Social Security to finance their golden years, a purpose for which it was never intended. America's politicians also tend to think in the shortest possible terms, the next budget cycle, the next campaign, the next election. Ask a politician where they see the country in 50 or 100 or 200 years like Ben Franklin did, with his last will and testament, and they're likely to tell you that it's not their problem. They have to get through this congressional session, or their term in office, or this presidential administration. The long-term future of the nation is an offhand soundbite, mentioned only briefly during campaign season. The National Treasury is trillions in debt and loses a trillion dollars per budget cycle. Quite a lot of our tax money goes to keeping big donors and big business happy, or sending federal money home to the districts of congressmen who want to use that large S as the primary reason to keep them in office. Look at all the money I bring back home to you, they say to their constituents. Look at all the money I gave you in tax cuts and government contracts, they say to their corporate campaign donors. Vote for me, they say to us on television, and I'll put more money in your pocket. Such is modern political campaigning. The two major political parties rake in billions of dollars every year, and use it to elect their own members so they can spend trillions of our tax dollars to maintain their grip on power. While the national debt rises, our infrastructure crumbles, our educational systems are starved for funding, and our citizens fight each other over manufactured partisan issues, while equal opportunity takes a beating. Most Americans have no savings, retirement or otherwise. A recent study showed that a large percentage of the population couldn't scrape together $1,000 in cash for an emergency. Credit card spending is at historic highs. Easy mortgage terms have resulted in first and second mortgages that will only get paid off when the house gets sold or the owner dies. And for the most part, Americans are working harder than ever, more hours, more days, more years, with fewer and fewer vacations or time off. They aren't so much in the pursuit of happiness, as the Declaration of Independence advised, as they are fleeing the debt that pursues them from behind. In the future it will have to take care of itself. None of which was Benjamin Franklin's vision for the middle class he was so fond of, or for the nation itself. So what do we do to counteract the judgy disdain of an early America's sagest founding father? And why bother in the first place? I mean, I managed to withstand the disappointment of my parents and grandparents, so why should it bug me that Ben Franklin is glaring at me across the centuries with that look on his face like I stole his parking spot or was mean to his dog? I believe that all of the founding fathers, Ben Franklin was one of the few who saw the American experiment from the perspective of all the people. Quite a lot of the founding generation were upper class, like Washington, Madison, Jefferson, Hancock, Mifflin, and so on. Those who weren't rich were intellectual elitists, like the Adams cousins and Alexander Hamilton. Few of the founders lived in the everyday world of the citizens they were building this new country for. But Ben Franklin had his eye on the common folk, who drove wagons and printed newspapers and baked bread and made things and fixed broken stuff. The people who had to work for whatever they had, without being able to depend on an inherited fortune or a government bailout. You might say that Ben wanted for us what we want for ourselves. Purpose, industry, a trade. The opportunity to put our skills and ambition to use for the betterment of ourselves, our families, our communities, and our country. And as he did, when our life's labors are over, We deserve to take it easy and enjoy all the things we spent a lifetime working for. So what would Ben want us to be doing 200 plus years after he wrote his last will and testament? Balance the present with the future. There's nothing wrong with living a good life in the here and now, but we can't work forever. Over time, our strength and endurance gives out. We have to be ready for the day when there will be no more paychecks, and we'll have to make do with whatever we've set aside from a lifetime of earnings. Debt is bad. Mostly. Incurring debt to buy things of lasting value like houses and cars and education isn't the end of the world, but putting yourself in a hole for fancy dinners and elaborate vacations or anything that causes you to live beyond your means is a bad idea. Do things to improve your communities. Ben invested in libraries, fire departments, and public works like water and sanitation systems. He believed that citizens had an obligation to spend part of their income, improving life for everyone in town. Improve yourself. Those libraries are there for a reason. At no time in our history have we ever had the kind of free and immediate access to information on any subject. Most of us, whether we realize it or not, are carrying the sum total of human knowledge around in our pockets. If you're successful, use that success to provide opportunities to others. If you own a business, set up retirement funds for your employees and match part of their contributions from profit sharing. If you have the time and resources to mentor a young person, do it. Endow a scholarship or a library, like bad old Andrew Carnegie did when he got visited by the ghosts of his past and future. Lead by example. And finally, vote for leaders who have a long-term vision for the country. It's not hard to tell what members of Congress or presidential candidates are only in it for the short run. They're the ones with the bright ideas for massive spending programs with no offsets to pay for them. They're the ones promising riches without work, achievements without sacrifice, progress without knowledge, and have no tangible plans to balance the budget or pay down the national debt. Politicians strive to be a reflection of the citizenry. If we have spent decades sending coin-operated live for today and let tomorrow be someone else's problem representatives to our capitals, it's because that is who we ourselves have become. If we are petty and partisan, we shouldn't be surprised when our Congress is. If our priorities were to suddenly change, and we cared as much about the America of two centuries from now as we do about the America of next Tuesday, our leaders would get on board. They really have no other choice. Benjamin Franklin, in his life and in his last will and testament, bet big on an America he wouldn't live to see, but he was sure of what it would look like. We can do the same. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a good review at Apple Podcasts and supporting the show on our Patreon page. There's lots of fun bonus content over there, like early access to new episodes and some incidents where I actually watch the news and rant about it. It's also a great way to keep the show going. A dollar a month or so goes a long way toward keeping us on the air, so to speak, and your support means a lot. Go to patreon.com forward slash not allowed to watch the news. And thank you so much. Time for you to weigh in. Post something on the I'm Not Allowed to Watch the News Facebook page, even if it's a picture of your own long-suffering pets. If you think Ben Franklin's great-great-grandson was a greedy so-and-so, or that Philly should have taken better care of their trust, you can Twitter to at Pod. You can Instagram, whatever that is, to Not Allowed to Watch the News. And as always, tell everyone you know who's disturbed about the direction the country is going in about us. We definitely need to stick together.
1: Support comes from the History's Trainwrecks podcast that focuses on stories like a temper tantrum that changed history, the president who promised not to run again and regretted it for the rest of his life, the World War II general who lost his pants on a secret mission in enemy territory, the History's Trainwrecks podcast, available now.